Welcome, everyone, to the fifth episode of Lazypedia. I'm Coley Angel. I'm Bradley again. Today, we're going to talk about a very popular topic, taxes, specifically taxes in North Carolina in the antebellum period. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and we're going to be using the phrase ad valorem, which is basically um, it's a Latin phrase. I don't remember the direct translation, but essentially ad value is kind of what we're getting at here. Okay, fascinating. So last week, we talked about voting in North Carolina, and we talked about the idea of free suffrage and the steps that were taken to get us to that point. Can you give us a, a brief recap and kind of take us into the time period that we're going to start the conversation today? Well, quite frankly, I was hoping you would do the recap because I wanted to quiz your ability to remember what we went over last week. Okay, fair so, enough. You do it. So... Last week, we talked about the free suffrage movement with David Reed. Was that his name? Yes. Okay. Uh, points to me. Um, the free suffrage movement was all about the ability for people to vote, not based on how much land they had, but based on uh, just one, I don't even say one person, one vote, because I, I complained a lot last week. Um, that it's really just uh, white men mm -hmm. who were able to vote uh, and that the, the struggle that they were going through was they wanted all white men to be able to vote regardless of whether they had a certain amount of property or not. So that, that was free suffrage to my remembering. How yeah. did I do? No, you did good. If I was a high school history teacher, I would say, wow, very good, Cole. You did a great job. Um, oh, okay. Well, that's that's some nice affirmation. Maybe but I'm not a high school route. history teacher, and I kind of expected more, <laughs> but it's fine. Uh, do you remember okay. what we talked about with the newspapers? Because newspapers are going to play an even bigger role now. Even bigger role. Yeah, okay. So what I remember mind. about newspapers, um, I remember that we said that it was sort of the first introduction that people had into the political system. Uh, it got people energized. They were mouthpieces of the parties, and everyone knew it. It wasn't uh, meant to be unbiased. It was meant to represent the party. Um, and people would go pick up newspapers together, so they would talk about popular issues. Uh, and they were very regional. Uh, so you had a lot of regional politics in the newspapers um, that, that popped up. How, how did I do on that? Yeah, no, you, you nailed it. Um... Oh. Yeah, you're doing great. Well done. Guess you're the, all right. Guess you're the big history boy now. Um, <laughs> so, do you remember when David Reed was elected? When he uh, the, the kind of the time frame here for free suffrage. So I remember he liked free suffrage a lot, and then he lost. Uh, yeah. And after he lost, just by a little bit, he then, in the second term, sometime in the 1840s, I want to say? 1850. Then he won 1850. Okay, well, I'm I'm I still just, proud of me. Yeah, it's one year away from the 40s. Okay. So, David Reed does his uh, little free suffrage dance in the General Assembly. You know, they're, they're constantly like, oh, we can't do this. Yes, we can. No, we can't. Yes, we can. It goes back and forth, back and forth. Now it's 1852. And is there free suffrage yet? 
No, there isn't. Um, I think I talked a little bit last time. It wasn't until 1857 that the General Assembly manages to kind of get their act together. By this point, David Reed is now a U.S. senator uh, for North Carolina, appointed by the legislature. Uh, And this time, there were not popular elections for U.S. senators. Uh, State legislatures actually appointed um, the U.S. Senate because the Senate was made to represent the states, not the people. Um, so I feel like that's that's jarring for me because I, I have a limited history knowledge, and so finding that out was was upsetting. Uh, but at the same time, you said it was the best around anywhere in the world. But just the idea that a group of people got to pick all of the elected persons, uh, there's no no even. Uh, you know, semblance of, of free election at that time. Well, I mean, it's you still just, got the uh, vote for uh, U.S. representatives. You just didn't get the vote for the Senate. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that just comes down to the um, the compromise made when creating the Constitution where your more populous states were like, yeah, we should be represented based on population. And your smaller states were like, no, we should be represented equally state by state. Um, and the compromise was, we'll just do both. Um, and then we've since then switched to popular votes where the Senate now represents the people, which of course leads to all sorts of um, um, unproportional representation. But, you know, that's that's a little bit outside the scope of what we're going to be talking about. Um, so, yeah, you're right. Um, it is a little weird, but that's the way it is. David Reed's a sitting U.S. senator. Um, and now we have Thomas Bragg as the governor for North Carolina. Um, he basically uh, didn't didn't run into much opposition from the Whigs. There, if you recall, they're kind of split between their East and their West. They're just you know they're falling apart. Um, I know the name Thomas Bragg. That is mm-hmm. of Fort Bragg. Is that correct? Correct. Aha, man! I am getting all types of points today. Yeah, you're doing great. Um, I'm I'm proud of you. Um, so Thomas Bragg, he gets to do free suffrage. David Reed, um, he's gone now. Um, but there's some shenanigans before David Reed leaves, basically. Um, we talked last time a little bit about his final speech to the General Assembly, uh, where he starts bringing up certain things related to taxes. But he's like, let's not get into that. Let's just do free suffrage. Um, but... The senator from Orange County, North Carolina, William Graham, uh, a Whig stalwart, served as governor before Manley. Um, he's demanding a constitutional convention now. Um, Reed just kind of was like, yeah, let's not do that. Um, and oddly enough, Charles Manley, who Reed defeated back in 1850 in his final address to the General Assembly, also said, hey, just do free suffrage. Don't do a constitutional convention because you guys will get up to all sorts of mischief. And that basically was his exact phrase. It just was, it would be the cause of mischief. Um, (laughs) But Graham is demanding a constitutional convention um, because he says essentially that the 1835 constitution was a compromise between East and West. It's split power between the East and the West. The East got their tax exemptions for enslaved property. The West got special voting privileges for land ownership because apparently the, William Graham, I guess, thought that was kind of equal. Um, ignoring the fact that 
people in the East also own land in addition to enslaved property. So Graham is demanding a constitutional convention. Uh, Martin Biggs, um, he was an Eastern Democratic senator, denounced the convention call um, in response to Graham's response to Reed's final speech. Um, and Biggs says that Whigs are trying to say that the state has three classes, the landholder, the non-landholder, and the owner of enslaved property. Um, and in a sense, this is kind of what the Whigs were arguing, that there are these three classes and we need to balance the interests of all of them together. Um, but Biggs says that's not accurate. There's only two classes of people in this state, Easterners and Westerners. Um, he, he basically says that if, if you remake the Constitution, if you fail to pass free suffrage without, if you fail to pass free suffrage in the legislature with, um, and have to do a constitutional convention, he warns that sectional strife will once again be heard. Um, okay. Yeah. So th this is, this is political person saying you don't want to start class warfare. Is that, is that the, uh, the understanding that that would be correct to come to yeah biggs is basically warning that if we do a convention we are going to unleash sectional warfare in the state between east and west that we have the state is not divided between landowners non-landowners and owners of enslaved property the state's divided between east and west that's what people are organizing around i'm a westerner and i'm an easterner and if you go back to the campaign of 1850 you see some of the same things where in the papers, uh, people are writing, give us a Western man we can trust and we will carry him to victory. Um, so there is, um, there is a sense of camaraderie based on where you are living in the state, East or West. Right, right. In your opinion, how much do you think the geographic location of a person versus the socioeconomic class of a person in the three classes, which one do you think was, was more influential? I think they're, I think they're, you're not able to separate the two. I don't think. Um, okay. Generally, yes, you had wealthy people living in the West of North Carolina, but by and large, it was the poor part of the state. It did not have the infrastructure. It did not have the fertile land for um, plantations um, whereas in the East, you had less people, but they were richer generally. Of course, there are plenty of poor whites in the East too, but they're heavily influenced in many cases by those, by the wealthy. Um, there's a story in 1855, um, and we will, we'll get a little bit more into 1855 later, I think, um, where... Miss Annie Darden, um, I cannot remember the county for life. I mean, it may have actually been Orange. Um, it may have been Orange County, but but she writes in her diary she was um, she was a wealthy uh, lady married to um, a guy who essentially owned all the land in the in the area, and one of her neighbors comes to her for assistance because um, her husband had fallen ill, and. Annie Darden writes in her diary, um, let me pull it up real quick. We'll take this. Oh, how blessed and happy are those who live free from want. How kind they should be to the poor and needy. 
Um, and she wrote that July 9th, 1855. Um, so her neighbor was a small subsistence farmer. Basically, he, he, what he grew, he lived off of. He wasn't making a ton of money from his crops, but he had fallen ill. And because of that, there was no means to take care for, to care for his family. So Miss Darden sees it as her responsibility to care for these people, as her place in society as a wealthy woman and an owner of many enslaved people. Um, and sure enough, a few that, weeks there's later, there's definitely some dissonance there. Yeah, definitely some cognitive dissonance of I must take care of people, but certain people. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure enough, a few weeks later, um, the farmer's wife returns to Annie Darden um, again, and this kind of displays to an extent, yeah, some neighborly love, but. I, I kind of viewed it a little more cynically as, well, yeah, you're kind of going to align with the people that are keeping you alive politically. Um, and so I feel like in some of these eastern counties where you had these very aristocratic, wealthy plantation owners, the the poor people living around this plantation who help also, who also help support it to an extent, are generally going to be politically aligned. That could be maybe too too much of an assumption from me, but that's just kind of the general feeling I get when I read some of the writings coming from wealthy um, residents of the state, especially in the East. And um, when we do part three of this topic, um, we'll be introduced to Catherine Dumont Edmonston. Edmonston. She's got a weird last name, but... Um, Regardless of her weirdly spelled last name, she she expresses very similar attitudes towards uh, the poor, that it was her responsibility to care for them. So, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this moment. I'm proud of those people. Well well done. Caring for the poor, people from the past. Well, they were I, I don't, white, I don't... so it was okay. Okay, I'm trying really hard to be positive <laughs> about something in the past that people did because... Last episode, I just was so upset about everything that they did. And they probably deserved an earful because a lot of what they were doing was cutting taxes for slaveholding and going back and forth about which white men should vote. Uh, so, you know, not really not really anything worth being proud of. <laughs> but caring for poor people, well done, people from the past. You did something good. You also did a, a bunch of other stuff that I don't like. But you did something good. Yeah, but um, and and again, this is just kind of how I viewed it as I went through these documents was them seeing it as their role in society to protect you know their neighbors around them, but also this implicit threat that if you don't kind of vote for the good things, if you don't vote the right way, you're not necessarily a friend of ours and. From, um, when we get the Catherine um, Edmonton uh, next time, uh, that will kind of become a little more clear. So, uh, because she does okay. get into an argument with the Whig later. Um, so I completely forgot where I was on that. Um, oh no, you asked a question about uh, socioeconomic status versus geographic, um, and yeah, the, I, I view them as linked together. You cannot ha- you cannot really separate them because the West was seen as poor. Um, and backwards while the East was seen as more advanced. There's actually um, a story told 
I believe in the Spirit of the Age, which is a paper that will come up a little bit later today. Uh, the Spirit of the Age was a temperance paper. I think we discussed it a little bit last week. Was dedicated to keeping people from drinking. But, right. Um, yep. They told a story where it, it was around 1850, and Charles Manley was in the West. You know, I hope you'll come out to the polls for me. I'm running for governor again. And an elderly Western gentleman is like, what do you mean you're running for governor? Is Graham not governor anymore? Like, he didn't even know who the governor was anymore. He was backwards. He didn't keep up with things. He didn't understand what was going on around him. And this was kind of the general view of the West. It was a backwards, undeveloped area where the people were, they just weren't civilized, you know? Boo the West. Yeah, okay. So... I'm trying to think of like an analogy that's acceptable mm-hmm. for like, you know, what that, what that looks like in, in modern day without, you know, uh, taking anybody down, you know, based on their geographic location, which isn't always fair. But, uh, I think we all know, we all know some places we all think of and we think, you know, that's not the most intelligent uh, high-minded society that is located in that that particular place. I, I won't I won't state any. Do we specifics. have any listeners from South Carolina? Do you know? Oh boy, I mean, probably not now. All right, South Carolina then. <laughs> Them and their fireworks and cheap gas. Well, it's because they don't tax. Right. Yeah. Um. So South Carolina's um. Perhaps wisdom aside, don't get me started on South Carolina. <laughs> and anyone from South Carolina, too. I mean, you could be from worst. South Carolina and be a good person. You know, just, it, it's just more difficult. I'm not like the people. <laughs> I'm not like the people of the 1850s. Just because you're from South Carolina doesn't make you a bad person. Just makes it more likely. No, it's just, you know, I'm more impressed if All you are All your aren't. friends are bad people. and I'm just more impressed if you <laughs> if you are. No, no South Carolina's great. Um, Charleston's, Charleston's nice. Hilton Head's nice. Myrtle Beach sucks. So. so anyway, getting back to it, Myrtle <laughs> Beach is like the trashy Vegas of the East. It's terrible. That, that I absolutely yeah. wholeheartedly agree with. They, they're like, oh, we got Myrtle Beach. Oh, who cares? So, yeah. There's a loud train going by. Can you hear that? Just faintly, yeah. Okay, it's fine. Uh, trains were a big deal in the West. I live in the West, so you know it's a big deal here. But um, okay, so yeah, we've got we've got this kind of aristocratic, uh, almost almost feudalistic uh, setup going on in the East. In the West, you know, backwards. Who cares? Um, but we've got this. We've got this. East West divide really hitting hard now um, by the by the eighteen mid eighteen fifties. Um, Biggs, as as we just discussed, was talking about these two classes existing: Easterners and Westerners. Um, and so we actually kind of have an issue going on for the Democrats because the wings of the party are starting the the, the strains of free suffrage are really starting to um, pull the party apart a little bit. Okay, so what what are the two 
polar opposite sides of of the party. So you've got your you've got your Easterners. You're, they're more conservative, more aristocratic. They're more we want to maintain the power, the status quo. We're doing free suffrage because we know which way the political winds are blowing here. So it's kind of I guess if you want to look at it cynically, it's kind of like giving the people a little scrap, like oh here you go, just to kind of keep them happy for a little bit longer. Okay, right. In the West, you've got more of a, we want to remake the entire system. And so these two wings of the Democratic Party are at odds with each other. But for for the moment, they're kind of playing nice, whereas the Whigs, they're just they're just falling apart. So and, and that, that's happening generally around the country because I mean I don't I don't know of any Whigs today. Yeah, well, the National Whig Party basically implodes in the mid eighteen fifties uh, due to the American Party, which kind of uh, um, was this nationalistic type party. It's a little bit hazy because the Whigs sort of take over the American party. And it's just, it's a mess. Uh, the politics in the mid 1850s, United States, it's a blast to study, but it is a mess. And you're getting similar things happening in North Carolina, though, more geographically based. Um, but you're right. There are no more wigs today. You know, that, that is a positive aspect to look at when you think of like political turmoil, turmoil, uh, you can think on that particular time and smile and say, this may be really difficult to go through, but some historian is going to get to read about this, and it's just going to make their day. Yeah, they'll make a podcast about it. Um, so by the mid-1850s, your conservative Whigs are actually kind of starting to coalesce around the amendments now. They're, they're kind of like, you know what, let's remake the system. Um, and they're trying to say that we are the true friends of the people of the state. Um, because we want to extend the constitutional protections that wealthy slave owners enjoy um, to they, – they're, they're essentially saying we want to exempt taxation from land in addition to slaves. So they're kind of going about it in a weird way where they're trying to appeal to the wealthy in the West. They're kind of ignoring the undercurrent of unrest from the lower classes. Meanwhile, Western Whigs are really getting um, getting antsy. So the Greensboro Patriot uh, paper in Greensboro, North Carolina, obviously, um, is kind of the flag bearer for the West now. Um, even though it's more Piedmont, it's more Western oriented at this point in time. Um, and so they republish an editorial in the mid-1850s from the Asheville Spectator, um, a mountain Whig paper. And they're condemning the Eastern wing of the Whig party. Um, so they published a line here. Thus, you see a man who is worth just $300 in land must pay just as much tax as the man who is worth $1,000 in enslaved. Nay, sometimes more. Um, and so the Eastern Whig party is failing to attract the support of the West. Um, additionally, the Democrats are beginning to lose support of the West. So the Spectator actually goes on to talk about Governor Bragg, who is promoting free suffrage, but nothing more, saying no constitutional convention. Um, and they say it is shameful for him to expect to foist himself upon the Western people of North Carolina as their friend and as a conservative man while he holds to such oppressive policies. So they're now portraying it as you are oppressing our rights. 
by not holding a constitutional convention. Okay, so there no holds bar. We want this. Nothing else will satisfy us. We need a convention because we have a list of things that need to be better. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> they actually also attack the entire Democratic Party. So, um, and yet the Democratic Party is the conservative party in North Carolina. And Governor Reed has been the peculiar friend of poor people in the western portion of the state. Shame on such a party. Shame on such a man. So they're now denouncing Reed, who is now a senator. Are those your words or someone else's? No, that's the paper. That's the Western okay. paper talking. <laughs> Just check it. I yeah. didn't know it. I'm indifferent. I'm indifferent to Governor Reed. <laughs> He's dead. I don't really care anymore. I'm over okay. him. All right. Um, so you can see the West is getting really agitated with both Whigs and Democrats. So we, right. the Democrats are, are they're starting to um, have issues here. I, I could see some of this in modern politics where you have people who want progress and then other people who want more sort of uh, normative in incremental gains. And then there's people in, within that party, particularly the Democratic Party, who want massive amounts of change and they want it now. They want mm -hmm. it today. And uh, but, you know, other parts of the of the party. OK, we want small pieces and small yeah. change. And they're saying, no, 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 no. We don't like this and this and this and this and this, and it all needs to change, and it needs to change yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that's just kind of how a democratic um, legislative system is going to work. Um, you can look at the United Kingdom with Parliament, and you, you, got, you kind of get similar things going on. Though, granted, uh, within labor, there definitely is a lot more splitting than what's going on in the Conservative Party, the Tories in England. Um but I'm also not an expert in United Kingdom politics, so I won't say any more on that. You uh, keep up with the royal family? <laughs> nah. I'm, they don't have any power. They're just rich white people. It's like future history. No, it's not. No one will care. They don't do anything. Oh, okay. They just sit there and wave at people and everyone's like, oh. In fact, I guarantee you that the royal family is more popular in America than they are in England. Oh my! Yeah. So uh, even the queen, the queen hates herself. Yeah, hates herself. Yeah, she doesn't even what? like it. Yeah, she doesn't even like being queen. Oh wow! No, I don't know. She'd anything. rather just. Uh, I don't know anything about it. Racehorses. Um, so, Graham uh, William Graham, our our Whig fellow from Orange County, gives a really really eloquent speech about. Uh, the 1835 Constitution and why a convention has to be called. Um, so he's talking about the sectional balance of power that the 1835 Constitution achieved in his eyes, saying, Sir, the language, Sir being the Senate president, Sir, the language of Eastern gentlemen addressed to their Western brethren was substantially this. Our property consists for the greater part in land that is protected against unjust levies by the power of the landholder to elect the Senate. That power we all agreed is to be retained, but we own the larger portion of the slaves. Give us a constitutional guarantee against undue taxes upon slaves and other matters being arranged satisfactorily. We will go into convention and give you equal representation. So what 
this little line is talking about is a compromise. If you allow the Senate to only be dictated by landowners, then and in, in exchange, you give us a constitutional projection against taxes on enslaved populations. We will go okay. to a convention and work this out. Okay, so is it right? That, so what he was saying was, we'll go to this convention. We'll let you have representation. You know, you get your seat at the table, even if you don't have land. Yeah, and this is in 1835. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so he's giving us he's giving a speech recounting this this compromise because what he ultimately is saying is if we go in and remove this protection that landowners hold. So basically if we go in and make it so anyone can vote for a state senator now, we've essentially removed this protection against unjust taxation on the landowner. So he's saying we need to call a convention because we have to restore the sectional balance of power. We cannot do this legislatively because we'll upset that balance of power. We'll be trampling on the rights of the landowners. How much did people care about the protections for the landowners and the protections for taxes on the landowners? Because he's making this appeal, and it sounds like he's saying, we all know that landowners have protections against taxes on their land and that is something that we all agreed on and is okay yeah people people cared um i mean it was all over the papers talking about this um this compromise and this argument that if you tip the balance one way or the other you're going to just undo the entire political fabric of the state so the West is really <laughs> causing some issues down in Raleigh now. Um, and okay. Graham actually ends his speech essentially saying that if we don't hold a convention, if we upset the balance of power in the state between East and West, we are going to usher in a conflict that no man can tell its end. Okay. So imbalance of power is that we want people to be able to vote whether they have land or not, and that is going to happen one way or another, but we need it to happen in a convention so we don't step on toes legislatively. Is that a fair So summary? Yeah, so basically it's, it's like this. If we go in and we allow anyone to vote for state senators, we've removed a protection for landowners because it used to be that you had to have 100 acres of land or something like that to vote for a state senator. And as a result, landowners are not going to vote for senators who are going to raise their taxes. But poorer people who don't own a lot of land, they might be more willing to vote for senators that will. So Graham is saying, if we do that, then the only people left with protections, special exemptions and special protections against taxation are actually the slave owners, the holders of enslaved property. But what, where does their protections come from? So their protection actually comes from the big tax exemption that exists within the 1835 Constitution, where they essentially pay no taxes on their enslaved property unless they are over the age of, I want to say, like in their 50s or under the age of like 14. So they're not paying taxes on labor, essentially, that is making them rich. And that is Man, their protection. Can- 
So landowners get the protection in that we're not going to vote for people, obviously, who are going to raise our taxes. And slave owners get the protection of <laughs> it's in the Constitution. You can't raise our taxes. Man. People who are like, it's in the Constitution. The Constitution is great. And but they were right in are... this case. It was yeah, in the Constitution. Right, but it doesn't make it morally right. So, I feel like that's the argument that people often make is it's in this document. Yeah. It is morally right. The people who wrote that document that said you don't have to pay taxes on slaves are morally reprehensible people. Full stop. Well, I mean. No one, no one in this case was arguing get rid of slavery either. So they're all kind of bad. Um, but the point, the point Graham here is making is if you get rid of one, you have to adjust the other because then you're going to have essentially Eastern uh, holders of enslaved property with really good power, <laughs> really, really strong exemptions from taxes. Uh, but Democrats are. St- still opposed to a convention. Um, So Senator Brogdon of Wayne County objects to the argument, and he says, if you're holding a convention for free suffrage, you're essentially issuing a search warrant looking for a turkey when you lost a cow. And those are, that's, the exact example he used. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, he basically says you are, a... you're solving the wrong problem. If you hold a okay. convention, you know, you're you're wasting everyone's time and money, basically. I, I wish I had a down-home southern phrase for every single one of my little conundrums in life. <laughs> they were good at that and, and back in this time. If you, if you really want some fun, read, um, read various um, antebellum newspaper pers- um, recordings, essentially, of legislative proceedings. They're, they're, they're fun. Back in the free suffrage one, there were three, um, three mountain representatives from like, I want to say, well, the counties aren't important. It's farther in the West and in, in North Carolina in the mountains. And the, um, the, they're basically proposing all these amendments that just keep getting shot down and they just keep doing it over and over again. And one of the representatives from, I think, uh, Davie County, or maybe it was Iredell County. It was somewhere in the Piedmont, but he basically is so frustrated because all these amendments keep getting sent and he gets up and he just yells out, you three will have more luck storming the gates of Gibraltar than you will getting your amendments passed here. Like he is just furious. <laughs> I love that a little bit. That's a nice little quote too. Yeah. So I had a, a professor who would at the end of class in order to move us along out the door, he would say, you know, you, you've got to get going I've got eggs to lay and dirt to scratch. Oh, my gosh. And I love that. It's fantastic. It's a great, you know, great saying, great little idiom. Hey, I'm, I'm busy. Why would you stay and in class chicken. later than you needed to, though? I was always, like, first out the door. I did not stick around. Oh, we had to ask him questions. It was oh. chemistry. We had to, we had to figure oh, out what okay, we were yeah. doing. We didn't know. I, when I dropped chemistry, I had a 35%. So uh, <laughs> maybe I should have been staying then. <laughs> oh, well. Maybe you should have. Had a down home professor who had some nice phrases. Yeah, there was and, like 120 people until in the he class. was ready to who cares. Um, yeah, get you go, get you out the door. Yeah, you went to a college where there was like 10 people total. Yeah, yeah, in the entire college. Yeah, it's just 10 people. Um, yeah, it was it was homeschool college. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Nothing changed for you. 
So uh, yeah. So Brogdon, you know, he he does his little search warrant and, and you know gives you that nice little Southern saying that you like. And feel free to adopt it. He didn't copyright it. You're good to go. But he all right. He ends his speech saying that the rights of white men should not be dictated by their financial status. So he's kind of laying down a battle line here, saying, you can't go and remove rights from rich people just because they're rich. That's silly. So he's viewing this tax exemption as a right. Whoa. Yeah, so he's waving off these growing calls for ad valorem taxation, that is, to tax enslaved property according to their value. Um, so a, a quick distinction here to make, I said that it was essentially a tax exemption. They did pay a small tax for their enslaved property, but it was, um, a poll tax essentially. So it was, it, it was, it was very small and not proportional to the value of the labor that was being forced here. I, I just want to comment this gentleman. One, he has fantastic phrases. But two, being able to take tax breaks for the rich and then turn it around and make it sound like you're fighting for the common man with mm-hmm. ought not to be dictated by their financial status it is very, very clever. You know, like that that man was very likely a lawyer, self-taught or otherwise, yeah. but absolutely clever. Yeah, I mean, there were plenty of real clever people in the general assembly at this time um i'm just gonna compliment everyone from the past yeah you're not, like taking the opposite you're taking the opposite route from last week it's interesting well so. I, I i just want to give him a fair shot i mean this guy i mean he's he's a real piece of dirt saying like listen white men shouldn't be dictated by their financial status let's have you know, tax exemptions for the rich should be absolutely okay. And basically every one of these people that signed off and said like, yeah, of course we should have tax breaks for the slaveholders, those poor people. Yeah, absolutely no good people. But uh, I, I'll try to find some, some silver linings that people do. Yeah, you can admire the, uh, the pretzel braining, the mind twisting going on here, trying to make it seem like a right um that's another good phrase i like that yeah um in my case they're dead i can say whatever i want they're not gonna hurt me so moving forward now so free suffrage as you can see it's kind of kicked open the door here to calls for greater reform now we're starting to see they're not arguing just over free suffrage they're arguing over tax rights now so why is it important, though? Why are people suddenly caring about taxes? Why didn't they care about it in 1836 or 1837? What's changed? Any ideas? I think that the newspapers played a role. They did. Final answer? They did play a role, but there was something else happening here, too. Railroads. So railroads, as we've discussed, were definitely more prevalent in the East than they were in the West. So politicians were like, hey, I know a way to get Western votes. Let's build them some railroads. Well, to build these railroads, you got to pay some money. (laughs) So there's actually, uh, we're going to jump backwards in time a little bit now. So we're going from the mid-1850s now back to January 25th, 1848. And it's a late night session in the General Assembly. Okay. 
So give, give me more atmosphere. What what else is what's the temperature? Cold. Okay. It's cold. And they're probably smoking their cigars. Um okay. Wearing their stuffy clothes and unbathed skin, whatever. Um but back to the story. <laughs> okay. I like the atmosphere. I'm in it. Yeah. I'm in the headspace. Just terrible smell. Um, it's late, it's late at night. The general assembly is in session, but they're all sitting in silence because one man, Calvin Graves, the democratic state Senator and Senate speaker elected from the stronghold of Caswell County, which, um, is in the Northern portion of the state, um, had essentially captured the attention of every single state Senator in the chamber at the time. So, um, William Holden's Weekly Standard tells it pretty well. The fate of the greatest measure which has ever received the legislative sanction of North Carolina hung upon the decision of one man. That, yeah. Um, So, in the words of William Holden's Weekly Standard, which we've talked about last time, um, the fate of the greatest measure which has ever received the legislative sanction of North Carolina hung upon the decision of one man. What was at stake, do you think? I am going to guess that it is... Is it something about voting? It's actually about a railroad. It was for the funding of a railroad stretching from Goldsboro on the coast of North Carolina to Charlotte, North Carolina, coastal to Piedmont, so connecting two far-flung regions of the state. But to pay for this railroad, the Whigs in the General Assembly proposed a tax increase on real estate, so land purchases, while the Democrats were broadly opposed to this. And the vote is tied at 22 to 22. Senate rules provided that in the event of a tie, the Senate Speaker casts the deciding vote. And so we have a Eastern-aligned Democrat in Calvin Graves now casting the deciding vote for a bill that was very popular in the West and with Whigs. Okay, I take it that this went in an unpredictable manner because we're talking about it years and years later. Uh, Also, I bet this guy felt like the prettiest girl at the dance. Everybody looking at him, and he's looking at them, and he's going, hmm, I wonder what I should do. And they go, will you please tell us what you're going to do? And he goes, hmm... Maybe, well, if you guys would be nicer to me. (laughs) I mean, they were already pretty nice. They elected him the Senate Speaker. He got to dictate. He was a Democrat, and he got to dictate what came to the floor, basically. Sure, sure. I I just imagine that he really enjoyed that (laughs) moment of everybody's looking at me. Honestly, I don't think he would have enjoyed this moment because the Democratic position was to oppose this bill, and the Whig position was to support it. And he has to decide whether or not the state is going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, which today would translate to millions of dollars, to build a railroad from the beach to the Piedmont. So Calvin Graves takes to the floor to announce his vote, and he says, I, yes. So the Weekly Standard kind of continues the story. The profound silence of the chamber was broken by shouts and the most rapturous applause. It is impossible to describe the enthusiasm which prevailed. So the measure passed by a single vote, saved by a conservative Democrat. 
I really like that storytelling. I, I kind of want to pick up papers and see if that's the type of storytelling that is done today. It's not. Okay. So Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> Save me some time. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason papers die today. So because Graves cast this vote, the state is now on the hook for a massive railroad project. And the state continues to do this through the 1840s, where they continue to fund railroads. So this is causing massive increases in state spending now. Additionally, you need people to build these railroads. Well, luckily, well, unfortunately, I guess is the better phrase here. Uh, luckily for the power holders of the state, you have a massive workforce that you don't pay. The problem is you pay the owners of said workforce. You pay the enslavers. And in fact, there were numerous wealthy people in North Carolina who made their money through rentaling, uh, renting out their enslaved workers. Uh, Jonathan Worth, who was actually a Whig um, and later becomes the Treasury Secretary of North Carolina during the Civil War and after the war becomes governor of North Carolina, made his fortune through the rental of his enslaved workers. But small-time farmers also kind of rely on this labor when there's time for a harvest. They need, they need assistance. They can't afford to own an enslaved worker, but they can afford sometimes to rent them to gain help on their farms at times. But when you have these massive railroad projects going on and the state's backing it all, essentially, they, they did this convoluted little thing uh, with stocks and stuff, but the long and short of it is it was a state-funded project. Um, all of the labor is spent building these railroads backed by state money. And so small-time farmers are struggling to get help for their farms as these railroads are being built across the state. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword for the West, where on the one hand, we're getting railroads. On the other hand, we are struggling now to afford labor. You could have said we're getting railroaded. I could have, but I have class. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So in 1855, we're going to jump back forward again here. And I okay, am going back to forward. get to the correct part of my notes. Um, distract the listeners for a moment. Okay. Jonathan Worth, total punk. Yeah. What, what, kind of, what kind of crappy person do you have to be to own slaves and then think, I'm going to rent them out to other people? It just takes another angle on slavery. It makes it worse. I should do an ep We should do an episode on Jonathan Worth. He was a drunkard. Yeah, I don't like him. Nothing positive to say oh, about him. Oh, he's so fun to study, though. Okay, well, I guess that's another lesson. Every time there's something really crappy in history, some historian 100 years from then is having a good day. Yeah, 160. I'm not having a good day because of it. It just it helped me write an entire thesis at one point. Um, so <laughs> we can do an episode on that later, but that's a much more boring <laughs> tax episode. So we're now jumping ahead to 1855. I feel so bad for you having to edit this one. We're jumping ahead to 1855 again. Um, and we've got a problem in North Carolina. It's called a drought. It happens all okay. the time today. But back then it was an even bigger deal. Because, well, you can't grow what you need to eat 
if there's no rain. So in mid 18, early to mid 1855, a drought takes hold across North Carolina. Um, and a farmer writing to his relative who was living in Arkansas at the time writes about Easterners just getting rich, just filthy rich, selling foods at these just exorbitant prices and using the railroads to transport said foods. Meanwhile, in the West, they could not afford the purchase said crops that they needed to live off of. And they, even if they could, they couldn't necessarily get them because the railroad system in the West was just, it wasn't as good. It was, it was just, there was a lack of railroads in the West to really help. And anyone who was able to grow during the drought couldn't get their goods to market. So the farmer actually talks about vast fortunes of crops just rotting away in wagons in the West. And he blames the Democrats. He says the Democrats are not investing in the West enough. And if they continue to do so, if they continue to fail to help the West, they're going to be forever resigned to the minority in North Carolina. He then goes on. He, he, this guy was on a tear. He then goes on <laughs> to say that Eastern Democrats are using the railroads constantly despite not paying for them because they have all these special tax exemptions. They have these special exemptions on enslaved property that if we tax them, you know, as we ought to, according to value, ad valorem, we could probably build railroads in the West faster. So he's accusing Eastern owners of enslaved property of reaping the benefits of things they had nothing to do with that they did not pay for. So... He, 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 he puts this entire conflict East versus West. We're back to East versus West again. Right. Um, we took a few detours, but this is the crux of it now all. We're the, back. the West is like, okay, we're going to do free suffrage, but we also want all of this addressed. And the East is kind of resisting a lot of this. What's notable about this particular drought in 1855, though, it did, it was kind of bad for the wealthy. Um, Annie Darden, who we discussed uh, a bit earlier today, um, actually writes a couple times how worried she is about the crops that they're growing, saying that they're just withering away and dying. The difference between Annie Darden, though, and these poor farmers is Annie Darden had the money and the means to get what she needed still. Right. Um, and at no point in her diary does she express severe alarm, like, oh my gosh, we are going to die. So. Did did people die in this in this drought? Oh, did I'm sure they die? did. Um, I I did not come across anything substantial, kind of pointing to that. But I also wasn't necessarily looking for if people were dying. Um, so that's one of those things I could go back and look over. But um, I I never stumbled across anything like that. But it okay. was it was hitting hard. Uh, as poor farmers, you know, their writings kind of talk about. Um, and I guess this would actually kind of be a good point to talk about what it was like to be a poor farmer, especially in the West. Um, so there's actually a really, really good publication, um, The Diary of a Yeoman Farmer, uh, The Diary of Basil Armstrong Thomason. Um, and Basil Armstrong Thomason was a s small kind of subsistence farmer 
living in uh, Yadkin County, North Carolina. So kind of in the northwestern foothills of North Carolina. And okay. his diary is fascinating. His journal is just, it's an incredible read um, because he's not a wealthy person. He's just kind of a, he's just a guy. Um, he, he's down home, salt of the earth, blue collar farmer. Yeah, that's, that's basically what he is. Um, extremely articulate though. He, his, his journal is filled with all sorts of philosophical musings. One of my favorite ones actually is um, he catches a grasshopper. He's sitting under a tree and there's a pair of grasshoppers and he catches one and he's just kind of looking over it. And he writes that as he looked over it, he thought, what is this grasshopper going to say when he gets home? Is he going to tell of this land of giants, these peaceful giants who set him free? Like, how does he view humanity, basically? And it's it's just he's full of like little little things like that. It's just this is like really that. good read. Yeah. Do Do you have any good uh, like southern phrases for me from from Basil Thomas Armstrong? Uh, Basil Armstrong Thomason. Um, Basil Armstrong Thomason. They his family I just called him his family just called him Strong. So you can call him that. Um, okay. No, not really. Um, again, it wasn't something I was necessarily looking for, so nothing comes to mind right away. Uh, but he does. He he doesn't make many comments about politics either. But we know a few things about him. One, he states at one point he cast his vote for a Whig candidate for the uh, House of Commons. Um, secondly, he was anti-slavery. He was actually an abolitionist, which well, that's is nice. okay. Very Let me exceptional. Brag on this yeah, guy. this this guy is someone you can be proud of. Uh, third, right. he was he was extremely literate. He actually worked on teaching his wife how to read after they got married, um, and he he actually in his journal talks about his courtship of his wife before they were married, and it's very cute stuff. He he at one point says, "You know, I'm not going to marry for riches, no, sir." Um, M-A-B, which was the initials of his wife, is the one for me. So he's like, I'm aware she's not wealthy. She's not going to carry me up to a wealthier class of citizens. I'm marrying her because I love her. Like, this guy is very pleasant. Yeah, he's a very good guy. Yeah, super pleasant. Talking about these musings of grasshoppers and, you know, reading books and spending days under trees and talking about you know, how he's in love with his wife and that matters more than money and he's against slavery. This guy was a great guy. Yeah, no, um, this is, this is the type of person you, you, you kind of want to like look up to at this time. Like this is what I hope I would have been. Uh, but life wasn't easy for Thomas and he was not wealthy. And in fact, he confirms many of the things that politicians are saying about the West. It's undeveloped. It's filled with people who live in a poor state. They don't have the riches and bounties of the East. Um, so he's actually him and his wife build their house and he's talking about um, what they've done to the house. So it was very poorly insulated. Um, he was late writing an entry in his journal one day he kept it daily for the most part and he he basically said it was so cold and so windy he just couldn't he couldn't write it was just so cold he couldn't focus on writing he just wanted to stay under the covers basically oh my gosh uh, so the house is very poorly in- insulated um 
they set up what little furniture they had when they moved when they moved in finally after building it and quote line the rough clay stained walls with pictures newspapers advertisements etc in order to hide them as much as possible from view um, additionally if thomason wanted to read a newspaper he had to travel which was a considerable journey for him to the post office to pick up his subscriptions for his papers uh, one we know for certain he was subscribed to was the spirit of the age a temperance newspaper so he was also against drinking Mm -hmm. he was very much against drinking and constantly begged his family to stop drinking this guy has no vices yeah basically (laughs) um and so he has to travel to the post office to get his papers then at one point he writes that he was very news hungry so much so that he made a special trip to the post office on a sunday to receive news from outside of his small community in Yadkin County, North Carolina. So, and this is a big deal because uh, Thomason was very Christian. Uh, he was also a school teacher. Um, he, he, North Carolina had a common school system and he was essentially a state employee being paid by the state to teach. Um, and some of his lesson plans actually survive and are in the publication of this journal. Oh my gosh, I'd love to to see that stuff. I've got yeah, a copy. I really like this guy. Okay. okay. Yeah, I've got a copy. I'll let you borrow it. Um, All right. So, Thomason is kind of representative of your typical Western small-time farmer. And no, he's above average. <laughs> this guy's great. But the way he's living, uh, he describes the things he's doing to his crops. He describes the just the incredible amount of work he's putting into his small farm that he... He sells what little he can, but essentially he's just living off of what he's growing and being paid by the state when he can. So this kind of shows that the West is undeveloped. The state is spending a lot of money to build railroads to address this, but they can't really raise the taxes they need to to address the deficit that's growing in the state. And if the deficit keeps growing, the state cannot issue loans and bonds to pay for things because the state credit will essentially fall. Um, I won't get into the nitty-gritty details of how all that works, but basically the more the deficit grows, the less likely people are to loan money to North Carolina. So Governor okay. Bragg in the eighteen mid-1850s uh, is starting to realize this is getting bad. And so he advocates for a new fund to be formed that would be paid into from the surpluses from other budgetary areas. To keep it less corrupt, he says it should operate independently from the government. So the government cannot access this money. It goes to paying down the state debt, and we cannot use it for anything else, basically. So... They have to set up a board, obviously, to run this fund to pay, you know, make the payments and all that fun stuff and keep track of everything. Um, and so they set up a board, and it's made up of Eastern Democratic conservatives. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Bragg goes on to not call for increasing taxes or reducing infrastructure spending. He's having to pay play a very delicate balancing act. He does not want to raise taxes because that will piss off his Eastern voters, but he cannot reduce infrastructure spending because then he loses the West. So he's trying to cut it down the middle here. And it doesn't quite work. 
Uh, Democrats, as we've kind of gone over, are splitting between East and West, and conservatives are openly writing now in the East about the overthrow of conservatism, with one conservative Democrat who coincidentally is serving on this fund that was made, believing it to be completely inevitable that conservatism in North Carolina would be overthrown. And he goes on to call free suffrage a miserable humbug. He's blaming free suffrage. Because we've given these people the right to vote, we are going to be driven from power now. Oh, gosh. So wait, this person, he got elected, so he's probably wealthy. And now he's saying all these people who are able to vote now, it's no good because I'm going to lose power. We're going to lose power. This thing sucks. Yeah, he's he's he called free suffrage a miserable humbug, and he's blaming it for the conservative losses that are growing, especially in the West. Well, I I did not know people spoke like that outside of Charles Dickens books. <laughs> so he he wrote about this to uh, Thomas Ruffin, who was um, one of the one of the members of the board and a. Former North Carolina Supreme Court justice, I believe he was the chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, very conservative Democrat. Uh, so these were in his private letters right there. Uh, but the newspapers, you can oh, kind of start seeing okay. the split. So yeah, he, he was a miserable sack of, you know what, in his private letters. Um, so free suffrage is kind of ruining the day because now the West is crying out for more and more and more something. That comes up in part three when we get to that. So Ooh. finally, free suffrage in 1857 is put to the voters and overwhelmingly passes. Like, I think there was one county that voted against free suffrage, and it was by like a couple votes. It was extremely close. <laughs> it was an overwhelming victory. When you ask people, hey, do you want more voting power? Typically, people are going to be like, hell yeah, we do. But the reaction in North Carolina is kind of muted. Like, it passes and everyone's like, okay. Like, everyone knew it was eventually going to pass. It was just a matter of time and how it got enacted. I, I wonder if it's like, okay, there's this progressive thing that's going to happen, but we want it to happen now and it's not happening now and that goes on for some time. And then when it finally does happen, you just say, well, that, that took longer than it should have. <laughs> That's basically kind of what goes on here. <laughs> it, it, everyone's just like, okay, we. that's nice, but taxes are kind of our thing now, you know? We kind of want to reform the tax system too. Um, and so Western legislators in the General Assembly are, you know, they're like, we did it. We got free suffrage passed. We did not, we didn't get our constitutional convention, but maybe we can do this again. And so they decide, let's try to use the same legislative method to force through tax reform. But, I mean, nothing happens in 1857. Free suffrage kind of wore them all out. But there's an election coming up in 1858. Thomas Bragg is not running for re-election. I don't think he could, actually. I think he could only run two terms. Okay. So the Democrats and the remnants of the Whigs, who, again, are just completely fallen apart between their eastern and western wings they just cannot get their act together um and in fact after 1854 i do not think they were able to put forward a single candidate in 1854 or 56 i cannot remember which one they actually put up two candidates because they couldn't decide on one um and so 
there's an election in 1858. The Democrats put up John Willis Ellis, um, which is a fun name. Um, no, not Billis at the end. John Willis Ellis. <laughs> Listeners can't see it, but in my notes, uh, he's gone in and wrote John Willis Ellis Billis. It's just John Willis Ellis. Uh, but he was a um, Democrat from Rowan County, North Carolina. The Whigs don't have a nominee. Uh, the party's just too split. They cannot. They can't get anyone nominated. Um, and so a former Democrat turned independent by the name of Duncan McRae uh, is kind of the opposition, so to speak, to the Democrats. He runs for governor. He was a former Democrat turned independent. His whole thing was, we're not going to raise taxes at all. We're going to use federal funds to pay for things, um, which I'll get into in just a minute. So I think that would be a popular platform. You would like- think, but it really wasn't. <laughs> okay. Never mind. So John Ellis, though, is a rising star in the Democratic Party. Um, when he was just 23 years old in 1844, he he won an election in Rowan County for a seat in the House of Commons. So he's just 23 years old. Winning an election as a Democrat in Rowan County was not a small feat. It was a Whig stronghold at this time in 1844. And he just won. And he surprises political observers around the state. Um, And in fact, he made the Democrats so happy, they award him four years later by electing him to the Superior Court in the West, which just infuriated the Whigs. So he he steps down from the courts to run for governor. Um, And there was this kind of will he, won't he thing going on, but he runs because he is probably the most popular Democrat in the state at this time, which says something Um, because there were plenty of them. Even if they were losing support, they were still in far better shape than the Whigs. So Ellis runs for governor in 1858. He's very young, just in his 40s um, at this point. And the entire election quickly becomes a sectional nest between East and West. So uh, one thing about Ellis too, he was fairly aristocratic, though he was born in Rowan County, which is kind of in the Piedmont, and you would kind of consider it more of a Western county. He was allied with Eastern conservatives. Because he was wealthy. So, so that's a good little callback to my question earlier. What matters more, where you're from or your socioeconomic class? And sometimes your socioeconomic class, and sometimes where you're from. Yeah, he was kind of an exception to the rule, I feel like, though. Um, and additionally, so additionally, Mecklen- the Mecklenburg County region, so Mecklenburg County, Union County, Cabarrus County, Rowan County, Iredell County, Gaston County, and whatever's under Gaston County. I don't remember if there is a county under Gaston. Um, but those counties are kind of a pocket of wealthy slave owners in the West. It's, it's kind of more of an urban population, though. Um, and so while Rowan County was a Whig stronghold, it was kind of on the border with Democratic strongholds. So while it was an upset, but it's also kind of important to keep in mind that these counties here with the Democratic Party – tended to align with the East more than they did the West because they were more urban. And as a result, they had a higher population of slave owners. 
You didn't have okay. these big sprawling plantations in this region, but you still had a considerable proportion of enslaved population. Right. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, it, it, it without that context, it, I, I, I should have included that earlier, but that's kind of what's going on with uh, Ellis. He, he's aligned more with the Eastern Democrats because he's kind of living in a region of the West that is more aligned with the East anyway. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so Duncan McRae, his whole platform is we're not going to raise taxes for the West. Instead, we're going to use federal funding that they got by selling land out in the Western frontier of the United States to private landowners. So he wants what's called disbursement, distribution to the states based on the profits that the federal government gained. He does not want any new taxes. But as a result of this, this means that he cannot promote new railroads without first getting the distribution. So Western Whigs, they they don't care. The the Westerners, they just don't care about McRae, and they do not support him at all. While Eastern Whigs end up throwing their support behind McRae. But more conservative Whigs in the East end up aligning themselves with the Democrats instead. Um, So, you know, again, the Whigs are just an absolute mess, and they don't support McRae. Um, Ellis ends up just winning in an absolute landslide. But there are still appeals being made. Even though Ellis is up against an incredibly weak candidate, there are still appeals being made to the West, because that's where Ellis is going to be weakest. And so one newspaper article um, basically urges Westerners on, saying that you have to do justice to the West, go to the polls, and vote for John W. Ellis. Um, And the paper there was the Weekly Standard, actually, William Holden's paper. So William Holden and Ellis had a close friendship at this time, too. So Holden threw his entire support behind Ellis. So, so the idea for the Westerners is go vote and you will continue to be catered to by people running for office. Yeah, but keep in mind, the Westerners aren't viewing themselves necessarily as being catered to anymore. They are not really supporting Ellis either. Ellis wins most of the counties in the West, but that's just because most of the opposition to the Democrats just stays home. They don't vote. So your vote totals actually are dropping in the West. So this is kind of a sign of trouble for the Democrats in that they're not really gaining new supporters in the West anymore. In fact, they might be losing support in the West based on vote totals. Okay. Um, at the local level, Democrats in 1858 actually do lose formerly secure seats in the West um, and in the East, a couple, especially in the northeastern parts of uh, North Carolina, Pasquotank County, that area. Uh, they start losing seats up there that were formerly Democratic strongholds as well. And so conservatives blame this on free suffrage. They're like, well, look at this. We gave all these people the right to vote, and now we're losing these elections. And they're worrying, they're fretting, really, about their place in state politics now. Is that what happened? So they, they say it doesn't matter if you have land or not, you can vote, and then their positions on many things become unpopular and they lose power? That's what they're saying. Um, the vote totals 
can maybe support that. But I think it's more because the Democrats were being so stubborn and that they would not address other issues, chiefly taxation on enslaved population. Okay. Um, that's kind of where I think the Democrats start losing support. Um, a case I, you could maybe make an argument. I have, I'd have to look back over uh, the data sets I collected. I actually collected data sets for every single election that we discussed so far. So 18... 48, 1850, 1858, and we'll talk about 1860 next time. But um, I have all the vote totals uh, pulled up. So I'll look over that, and uh, next on the next podcast, I will let you know. I'll get back to you on it. Okay. So I look forward to sick numbers, y'all. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the Democrats are seeing some signs of trouble popping up. And in the 1858 session of the General Assembly, so towards the end of 1858, Moses Bledsoe, the Democrat from Wake County, the home of Raleigh, the state capital, um, a Democratic stronghold. Um, additionally, Moses Bledsoe was also the chairman of the Democratic Party in Wake County. So this guy's Democratic credentials cannot be questioned. And he comes out in favor of ad valorem tax reform, ending the tax exemption on enslaved property. Whoa. This is huge. This is a big player in democratic politics in a democratic stronghold coming out in favor of tax reform now. And not what, only what that happened. Not only that, he declares that he's going to oppose the status quo of tax laws at every single opportunity he can, implicitly threatening to hold up the General Assembly altogether. Whoa, what, what, what happened with this guy? Who, what, where did his inspiration come from? I'm not entirely sure where this comes from. Uh, Eastern conservatives say he's a demagogue. He's basically just saying this to get votes. He's just, oh, he's just trying to win elections. He doesn't actually care about rights. He doesn't care about you people. He just wants to enrich himself. That's kind of what they accuse him of. Um, his proposal quickly gets defeated in the General Assembly. Um, and oh. is instantly rejected, and they're like, "You're just a political demagogue. You're not. Act you don't actually care about this." I still kind of like this guy, e even if he's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. I still like him. Moving us forward, <laughs> he's trying. Um, so this is kind of a problem for the Democrats because now a Easterner is calling for ad valorem tax reform. Well. Fast forward another year here to late 1859, and you remember the spirit of the age? Basil Armstrong Thomason reads it along with a lot of other people because it is the most widely distributed paper in North Carolina. Yes, and this is the anti-drinking paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The temperance paper. Mm -hmm. So an article appears in it one day in late 1859. And it starts, to the working men of Raleigh, I think the present a favorable time for us to unite and make a demonstration which will relieve us from unequal, unjust, and oppressive taxation. All parties of all professions of all classes and occupations should unite and form an association, is what he's calling for. He's calling for an association to force tax reform. Where is this okay. located? Wake County, North Carolina, home of the state capital and a very, very strong Democratic stronghold. Oh, did he write this thing? Is this why you said it, it appeared in the paper? We're not sure who wrote this one exactly. 
Um, and the, the plot's going to thicken a little bit here because remember William Holden? We talked about him a few times. He's a good friend to John Ellis. He's the Democratic kingmaker in the state. He writes the Democratic mouthpiece for the state, the Weekly Standard. He is the voice of Democrats in North Carolina. He kind of gets okay. caught up in this in a little bit. So right. the great inequality is, of course, the tax law. And the author um, does some math and estimates that the state taxed a carpenter making about $500 from his um, his work that he would tax them about $5, while the masters of enslaved persons who had enslaved carpenters putting out the same income or generating the same income, selling the same amount, would only pay a single cent of taxes on that same oh income. And so drawing upon the state constitution, the author basically says that the revenue laws as they stood were actually in violation of other clauses in the constitution that forbade the granting of exclusive privileges to certain classes of the population. So he's like, you guys are completely ignoring the fact that you're in violation of the Constitution. The same document that grants you these rights is also saying that those those rights are in violation of the Constitution. Is his argument that the slave is actually not granted the like tax exemption and therefore that the slaveholder should not be granted the tax exemption. Is that the argument there? He's, yeah. He's basically saying if, if I'm just a regular carpenter and I generate $500 in revenue, I get taxed $5 on that. Whereas the owner of an enslaved person has an enslaved carpenter who generates the same amount of income. So that it all goes to the owner of the enslaved carpenter. He gets $500, but he's only taxed a single cent on that because it came from an enslaved person he's not getting charged a tax on his enslaved person he's just being charged a capitation tax a poll tax essentially okay so, so I, I think that maybe there's more nuance here that the, the the skill of the labor there in the products should be taxed equally versus just the actual you know, value of the person. Is that, is that the that's, argument? That's part of it. But he's, he's, he's kind of ignoring the fact that the owner of the enslaved person is still probably paying that $5 granted. It's probably coming from somewhere else in this case, but he's arguing that it's not, it's, it's unequal for someone to own an enslaved person, not do the work, and not pay a special tax. They're not working. And in fact, Basil Armstrong Thomason in one of his writings talks a little bit about this, where he says that the rich who do not work are in fact poorer than the poor who do work. So he's kind of calling this out, saying that it's not fair that those who are working are being taxed, in a sense, more proportionally than those who are wealthy. They're they're sitting there collecting the wealth while not doing any this, of the this, work. This guy who is a school teacher and anti drinking and you know knows believes that slavery is bad and just way ahead of his time and living a peaceful, serene life with nature and crickets. <laughs> I like that guy. Yeah. Basil Armstrong Thompson. He's a, he's a swell fella. Really tragic though. He just dies mysteriously in eighteen sixty two. He was very young too. Oh no. Um 
And yeah, there's not really much record of what happened to him. So, so this call for the association goes out, and Democratic papers all across the state are like, no, this is not going to, this isn't going to work for us, dog. Um, and they quickly denounce the Working Men's Association, calling it demagogues, you know, rabble raisers, and some even calling them, you know, the tools of abolitionists, the tools of Republicans. Ooh, that's a real bad one in North Carolina. Republicans were hated in North Carolina by the late 1850s because they were the kind of the party of abolition for the most part. Okay. So the Democratic, the conservative Democratic position here is that if the government reforms taxes, it would just reward those who were, quote, careless spendthrifts or reward unmarried men. While punishing those who were saving their wealth and raising families. Um, Additionally, the Democrats were like, you guys are the ones engaging in class legislation by seeking to undo these carefully protected rights of those who owned enslaved people. Man, like the the wording of these things where they're like, oh, you're actually the bad guy Mm -hmm. and you're actually the one who is – is thinking about classes and oppressing people because you want to tax slaveholders. That is some really careful and, you know, very, uh, a lot of thought has been put into something that is just a really crappy thing to do. It's, <laughs> it's a turn of phrase. It's impressive. And it, it's just that's downright. That's, that's how politics works. Yeah, it is politics, but. You know, can you imagine like everybody getting together in a room and they're like, okay, they want to have equal taxes on slaveholders, people who don't work. We need to make them sound like the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's messaging. Right. But like it, the, the fact that they're able to do that with some efficiency, shocking, frightening. Yeah. Well, notice in all of this that the Whigs are real quiet. The Whigs, you know, like I said, they, they've imploded. They're falling apart. There's not much going on on the opposition side right now. But interestingly, all the Democratic papers around the state are just denouncing the Working Men's Association, with one exception for the most part, the Weekly Standard run by William Holden. It stays neutral. It doesn't denounce or promote this association. In fact, it reprints the association's declarations. And it records the meetings, the Weekly Standard does. Um, okay, so it, it's you say it's impartial. That sounds like a little bit of support, mm-hmm. especially if the popular line is, you know, don't even talk about them. Yeah, it's a, it's it's kind of interesting. Holden Holden's paper, William Holden's paper, the Democratic political mouthpiece decides to stay neutral and says that all Democrats ought to have freedom of thought and opinion. And he basically goes on to say that the party needs to stick together, and he tries to build a common enemy for the party to turn against so that they can kind of ignore the split going on over tax rights and instead unite over northern republicanism, abolitionism, and basically saying this is who we need to be fighting, not each other. He doesn't view ad valorem taxation as something that the party needs to rip itself apart over. So – it's a little bit interesting here because then the Democratic papers in turn start turning on Holden and start turning on the standard. Um, and so the paper down in Tarboro, North Carolina, in the farther east of Raleigh, um, 
there an article unfortunately the full article doesn't exist and to find out about this article you actually can only read the response from the weekly standard which quotes it from time to time but the author of the article down in uh the article from the democratic paper in tarborough uh, writes an ad valorem squabble fever amongst a few citizens of Wake County, nurtured by a certain few in Raleigh whose designs answer the purpose of titillating themselves far better than they would of gratifying anyone else if placed on paper. Basically, saying they're just doing this to entertain themselves. They're not serious. This is just a squabble. But he's kind of saying that certain few in Raleigh are doing this to enrich themselves. He's implicitly accusing William Holden and the Weekly Standard of being aligned with this group simply to gain more favor, to gain more riches. Mm. It's interesting because I feel like this is a theme that I've seen pop up a few times. Mm -hmm. And if I had to generalize this theme, it's that people use progressive movements for their own benefit and advancing their own careers. That's exactly it. It's kind of a hijacking of well-meaning politicians from time to time for more ulterior motives, basically. Um, right. And that might be just my overly cynical view on politics in general. Um, but by and large, I feel like a lot of progressive movements tend to get hijacked for money and power. Well, I'm not sure it's a bad thing because I feel like the people who hijack them are thinking – this is going to raise my name, be a bit of a cult of personality. Whenever you hear this progressive statement, you're going to think about me, <laughs> this person, or whatever. But I think the the possible benefit of those individuals is that they might take some of the you know, earnestness out of the movement, but they also probably add a fair amount of energy. And you know, we, we sort of talk about demagogues as like, oh, this negative person who's all about their own image and self-promotion yeah. and they they get popular I, th- I think that there's some benefits to having cults of personality and, and people who become larger than life and you know they represent a movement and you know it's no longer about individual ideas it's about this person and you know they take up the the cause and unite people behind them so i don't know i i definitely think that there's probably plenty of cases where people hijack progressive movements and suck the wind out of them and they are no good themselves. But there's probably some cases where people hijack progressive movements and make things happen where they otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, you're right. I mean, good things can happen from bad motives sometimes. Um, and this, All right. <laughs> there's history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is history right there. Good things happen from bad motives. Um, but yeah, that is the common thing whenever a progressive movement in the antebellum era, and we're using progressive for the time. Obviously, today it doesn't, it seems downright backwards. Why would they have to fight for something like this? Um, it's just the way it was. But Holden is starting to lose his status as the Democratic kingmaker by the end of the 1850s. Um, And suddenly, the Whig papers across the state show back up, especially in the West, and they start agitating the Democrats. They start constantly bringing attention to this division that's growing in the Democratic Party. And essentially, a new party forms out of the ruins of the Whigs called the Opposition, 
the opposition party, and its alliance of Western Democrats and Western Whigs. Additionally, Eastern Whigs fall in line with the West. The West, the Western wing of the remnants of the party wins out, and the Eastern side falls in line. And so the opposition suddenly appears in 1860. And this is a very legitimate threat to the Democrats because they've got the Whig organization behind it, along with Western Democrats. Additionally, they've got Eastern Whigs. Most of the uh, conservative Eastern Whigs by this point have actually shifted their support to the conservative Democrats in the East. So the Whigs that are left over are now aligned with what's called the opposition. So That's an interesting name for a party because it, it, it's almost like admitting that the other side is more established mm -hmm. that's exactly what they're right but it's the it's almost like naming your party the rebels <laughs> well the point they're trying to make here they didn't officially call themselves the opposition party it's just easier today to think of them as a party they're more kind of loosely affiliated they they don't want to be thought of as a party um and in fact what we'll see in 1862 with the conservative party that appears is that it, it's kind of a case of they really try to portray themselves as people who care about the people of North Carolina, not the party. That's nice. Um, and so that's what the opposition is trying to do. We are opposed to the Democratic Party and this constant grab for power that they've been doing. And so that's kind of what the opposition – is going for here that's why they're calling themselves the opposition they're not coming up with a party name they're not calling themselves the Whigs. they're not calling themselves independents or anything like that they're calling themselves the opposition but they don't want to be portrayed as a party and so now we're moving into 1860 not much is being done on the tax reform free suffrage is enacted but the west is suddenly back and they are making some noise <laughs> As, 18, as the election of 1860 starts to loom and the campaign kicks off over the summer. And that's where we'll leave off on the story for today, because otherwise we'd be going for another hour. And unless you are driving <laughs> across the state, um, you don't want to hear that right now. Um, okay. And so our next, our, next, um, our next podcast here will actually be the grand finale of um, this story as the election of 1860 takes place and the civil war begins um, because the civil war, believe it or not, plays a large part in the story as well. All right. Well, that, that is definitely a lot to look forward to just to, to think about where we have arrived at this particular time. We've gotten through free suffrage. We've had all types of back and forth with taxation. Uh, you know, a lot of people have some very hard feelings about it for, and against people rising up. And now we have this solid opposition party that is ready to take on Democrats and represent people. And, you know, whatever, whatever that exactly means at the time. <laughs> also, we learned about a, a fantastic individual who defied his age with kindness and grace and was just a lovely person. Yeah, Basil Armstrong Thomason. I like his name very much. Yeah. If you can get a copy of his journal, I highly recommend it. Um, not only is he just fascinating for kind of 
who he was at the time period, but it's a really good look at how these small time farmers, how these kind of regular people in North Carolina uh, were living. So it, it is, if you get your hands on a copy, um, I don't think mine was very expensive, maybe 25 bucks. Um, I do highly recommend getting a copy. Okay. Well, I will, uh, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for that. So thank you everyone for, for joining us for this episode. We will see you next week. Goodbye. Legally altered my voice last time. No, that was you. That was you saying those things. I don't say yes the same way every (laughs) single time. And now, of course, you're going to go and like take that out of context and ask me some of my name Uh, question. Like, did you put on both of your socks today, Bradley? And I'll be like, yes. I could. I just did your job for you. Questions? The hell are you? Yeah, you did. I could just edit myself out of all of that. Just kind of cut pieces out of that. People people be like, damn, when the recording stops, he goes nuts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My blood alcohol Uh, content is just through the roof, guys. You don't even know. I I really liked my, uh, is it true that every Tuesday night you dress up in a tricordered hat, wooden shoes, and a petticoat, and nothing else, and recite the Constitution of the United States? I was very proud. I don't even that. remember saying yes with that inflection. That's what made me more mad. I altered every single yes a little bit. Of course you did. Yeah. But granted, if I was uh, editing this stuff, it'd never go out. I'd just be like, yeah, this sucks. Why are people listening to it? <laughs> What's wrong with people? Um, you got you got what you needed. You danced enough for us, history boy. You're done.